Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com app or wherever apps are sold. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, back at HQ. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. So today's topic is an interesting one. This is an oxymoron. Trade like Warren Buffett. Buffett's margin of safety. Are we talking about the same Warren Buffett guy here? Yes. Oh, we are. Okay. So this is a book I have read. And you have not. I have. There's not. an actual book called Trade Like Warren Buffett. I would like to recommend it to people and stuff. Um, except if I remember, it's not that cheap. Like the used market for it. So I like to get books at like you know like two dollars before shipping, used and stuff. Yeah. And uh, this I don't remember being in like that category. So I actually never really buy new books unless it's like like Poor Charlie's Almanac. That mm-hmm. to me was kind of more like a piece of treasure. So okay. I buy that new and books similar to that but I typically buy used books. So no, I actually have not heard of this book. Jeff just started talking. He just flipped the book open and he was like, yeah, have you heard about blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of stuff I know about. I was like, wait, let's, let's turn the mics on. Let's get the camera going. Let's talk about it. So tell mm-hmm. me about it. So who's the author? Uh, James Altucher. Al- yeah, everyone on Twitter is going to know who this guy is. Right. Because people like to... I don't know anything like about his, his existence. Well, you were saying yeah. that he recreates himself. And that's true. Yeah. I think and last I heard he was a Bitcoin guy. Yeah. And it's interesting. And in the book, he talks about how he was skeptical about Buffett's approach and stuff. He's clearly not a long-term investor and value investor. It's clear from the beginning talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there, I don't necessarily agree with some of the things he says in it. Uh, not like the, I disagree with the facts, but there's some conclusions about some stuff that isn't how I'd analyze it. Okay. So I don't know if it's, um, it's it's a very good source of information for certain things uh, that you wouldn't know about. So it gives you hints of them and stuff. Uh, I should also warn, it has some errors in it which i noticed it has some typos and things in it which i corrected and it's not a very well edited book for wiley by wiley standards it's it's poorly edited but i only know that because i'm kind of you know we read a lot about buffett and stuff so i noticed like he mixes up two of this um people involved with berkshire hathaway he calls seabury stanton jack stanton and then in another case he called he actually does it three or four times it refers to dempster mills as dempster mining Oh, wow. And some things like that. There's some other stuff like that. That's a big difference in a name right there. It is. Two totally different things. Sure, right, yeah. And there's little things like that, which is unusual for a book published by a a major publisher like Wiley, because usually it's caught by editors and removed and stuff when you have errors like that. Uh Um, Because they they hire like people who actually look up those facts and things to make sure. Yeah, that's interesting. So what did you learn about it? And I guess talking about... But the, I recommend the book. The price. You know, I want USA, to whenever this came out, $50. It's why so the, the original price is high. It just matters if the used market is cheaper. Okay, so why do you recommend people to read this? I've never even heard of this book okay honestly so it's so it's all the stuff that is in his long-term investments so it discusses his convertibles and things so people would be familiar with those champion solomon us air um those sorts of things but what they might not be as familiar with is like his private uh private and his personal portfolio mm-hmm. um it also discusses things about like merger arbitrage the one that people would remember the the best is uh what is it arcada or something like that uh the um uh redwoods 
um, deal and some things like that. His junk bonds, you know, he bought Amazon junk bonds and things and things in those cases. So like a closed end fund arbitrage, which he did several times. He was involved with closed end funds. There's also two interesting interviews in it. Um, there's an interview with, uh, there's three interviews in it, but two I'm going to recommend, which is there's one with uh, Zeke Ashton and there's another one with a uh, pub Oh, interesting. They're both interviewed in the book. Yeah. Got it. So what did he do? And I think it's, it's 2005, the book. Got it. So yeah, there hasn't been a lot written about his personal portfolio. And I right. think Pabri actually said, I'm pretty sure he was a source that he heard from Munger, his personal portfolio. A lot of times he used leverage. He would hold yes. three stocks. It was right. very different from Berkshire. Absolutely. So it's a lot of special situations, workouts, things like that. A lot of REIT things. When people ask about how Buffett thinks about real estate, I point out things that he does in this. Um, the higher returning things. There's also some related hedge things and stuff. Some things I don't like Buffett doesn't really talk about his personal portfolio ever. And there's also some things where I never talk about some of the things that I did in the past um, that fall under the same category, which have fairly high um, returns that you can calculate in terms of an annualized basis, but they come up randomly and, and things like that. The only one I've mentioned before is when I say I don't short, that's not true. I have shorted to do related hedges, which is uh, a technique that I used a lot, which was shorting a stock while going long a convertible preferred, which years ago there were some errors in the market where it was constantly having um, the spread on that be way too small. So you could almost own a convertible with no risk of uh, loss in the common stock. So like if the common stock went up, maybe you'd lose two, three, four percent or something. If it went down, you'd make all of that. Mm -hmm. And so it was smart to do that uh, a lot. And for a few years there, there were just constant opportunities in the 2000s that way. I also did buying like, you know, um, those, what do you call them? Uh, 99 shares. And then they cash you out all the time, mm -hmm. you know, the odd lot tenders. And like the Buffett thing seemed to fall very much in those same categories over and over again. That's what reminded me of it is like all the things that that you would do with a really small portfolio. That's the kind of thing that you would uh -huh. do. Didn't you write a situation up like that for Value Investors Club? That no, that was a not... trade. That was a trade. So I, I you said you chose it because you felt like it was something that they would actually approve because it's more of their style. And it worked out beautifully, right? Right. And they didn't accept you yeah. too big. It was to go long. Um, uh, it was to simultaneously go long uh, the stock of an electronics company. It was called Rex Electronics, which was going to become a ethanol company and then short an ethanol company because the ethanol company was priced, which had the name ethanol in it, was priced at several times higher. So say it was priced at two or three times book, right? And then the electronics company was priced at half a book. So you go long one and short the other because in a few years, you know that eventually it'll sell off the rest of its electronics, buy ethanol, and then change its name to ethanol. So it's like a convergence thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot like that. I mean, the, Buffett's personal things people would know. He did some things for Berkshire, like buying silver, which is a weird one because he had to buy so much silver mm -hmm. that I think that was a problem. But commodity things like that where things are out of balance, supply and demand. They talk about fixed income arbitrage, same ideas where there's discrepancies between things. We've talked about that sometimes off air, never on air, where I've been like, this is mi very mispriced what happened with the warrants versus the stock today yeah. in the mm -hmm. stock. Like a stock would be down by a huge amount. And so the warrants would go down to worthless. But that's really not right mm. what happened there because they had one terrible down day that shouldn't wipe out all the value in the warrants that had so many years left on them and so suddenly you know the warrants could be a lot more attractive now 99 times out of 100 you still lose money on those warrants mm -hmm. but they were definitely mispriced versus this common stock yeah you were talking about it has speculative value yes right so i mean is that is there like a form of i guess you could call intelligent speculation 
Yeah, and Graham did it, and Buffett did it. I mean, when people say, like, why was Buffett willing to buy long-term capital management, uh, their assets from them, it's because the trades they had on were going to work eventually. They were going to converge, you know? Now, they did it with a lot of leverage and had some problems there, and then people knew what their positions were, and so that caused them problems. But, um, you know, it, like, closed and fun stuff he did. That's just something that they overlook sometimes when they talk. I don't hear most stories about Buffett, including the story about like source capital. Mm-hmm. So they were in two closed end funds and um, Buffett and Munger. I was going to say through, Munger did a lot of this. Through, Munger did it through blue chip and stuff. Originally Munger was doing it. And um, th- what ended up happening. And then the other one was originally called Fund of Letters, I think, um, which was uh, they were. So they were like um, hot 1960s stocks, which are uh, um, closed end funds, but they're like a lot of things today that would be like SPACs and stuff like that. And so they were in very speculative sorts of things. And then the idea is you take them over, you clear out those sorts of positions and then you buy new ones with them. And that's what they did. And obviously the, eventually it closes the gap with, um, uh, between the asset value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Munger had that problem because if you remember, uh, for his partnership, he had to use the market price. For the stock. Mm-hmm. So if he, he owned a closed end fund in a big way and it was trading a 50% discount to net asset value and he controlled a lot of it, he actually knew that on a look through basis, the stocks that they had are worth twice what he's telling his partners. But for the accounting, they can't do that. So uh-huh. they use the market price. Yeah. Did he talk about the story of somebody? Sh- would they own something with the ducks or something like that? And then they shot a, a shotgun no, and then they did. realized that there was oil on there? No, he did not uh, do that. Do you know what story right? I'm talking yes. about though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that wasn't in that book? No. Um, but some some of his investments were in energy things. We know a little bit about that. A lot of his investments during the partnership years seem to be workouts of some kind. And those are common. And uh, kind of interesting. And maybe explain workouts for those that aren't familiar with it. Right. So workouts are you buy something where um, you expect a timetable to have things that aren't related to the market um, result in a gain or a loss that you would have based on the probabilities. So commonly risk, what they call risk arbitrage, or so merger arbitrage and things like that. Again, I've done some of the same things that he did. And it was interesting that way. Like one of the ones that I've done is I do very little merger arbitrage stuff, but what I will do is I will buy if I, so I learned that there's like a merger being proposed. I read up on it and I go, actually, I would like to buy this company at this price. And if I do, then I buy the company. Okay. Okay. And Buffett mentions this buy as into, a possible out. Into which which part of the company? The one you think is getting a good deal being okay. sold. Got it. So um, I've also done the same thing. I also, if I own a company already, I hold it to the conclusion of the deal if I think that they're getting a good deal. But if I think they're paying too much, then you might sell. But the reason why you do that is because there's an opportunity Two things. One, the odds that it closes, if you're right, that it's a good deal are much higher. But two, the odds a bigger deal comes along is actually a lot higher. But three, and the best part is, if the deal doesn't go through, you can keep holding the stock. And Buffett mentions that. In fact, the the author here talks about that, where it's very interesting. He talks about the probabilities on a deal. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about, he's like, here's what you have to do. Um, he like, he doesn't just do the math of the numbers, the formula, which everyone would do There's, Graham had a formula for it and it's reproduced in like all textbooks and things about it. But what he said actually is, um, uh, so what he actually said is like, what would you, what do you do if the deal doesn't go through? Mm-hmm. Like, what's your other out? And that's the thing with his margin of safety, which I think is, uh, a, the part that you should learn the most from this book on is that Buffett applies the idea of margin of safety in both cases. And I think people confuse that where they don't realize he's hit, but 
Buffett is more of a margin of safety investor than anything else. Mm-hmm. A certainty investor, a high conviction investor. So like he, when he buys Coke, he's sure about the business and everything. But when he invests in businesses that are very questionable, he's often sure about the sort of situation that he's in and how it will could be resolved. So like when he did the deal with the merger arbitrage where it was, uh, I guess, KKR in that Redwoods deal, um, he figured that the amount that they would get from the government seizing their land or whatever had happened there would be pretty high. And oh, and that's another one. I invested in a situation where the government had seized land from someone. Oh, really? And that was successful too. So What was uh, the situation there? Uh, the, a state had seized land and insisted that the value of the land was like industrial value land and stuff instead of that it could be repurposed to like residential land and then it had also been many years since they did it and under state law they fixed the um interest payments Mm -hmm. so instead like maybe interest rates like now would be three percent or something but remember that states have to pay the like eight percent simple interest or whatever if that's what's in their laws if that's what the laws are about compensating people for land that they've taken so it was like uh, an eminent domain case and uh i didn't i watched the case but then i didn't buy it when the case was being i read all the the documents all the presentations they made to the judge and stuff on the um the uh argument for the appraisal basically it was they were going to you know the judges were going to pick one side or the other they're you know um but i just waited till that was done because then there'd be an appeal Mm -hmm. and i had no idea about the odds in a trial right but on appeal they're not going to look at the facts of what happened again and re-litigate that part they're just going to see like whether the process was right and everything and so then i could talk to lawyers and be like what's the chances of them losing an appeal on this And they're like it's not they're not going to reverse a lower court on this one so um and the stock was still like maybe half of what it could be right hmm. so it probably went up five six times or whatever right like you miss out, you know that's one of the things buffett said is like about the arbitrage thing is you know you make the last five cents after the other guy made the, the five times <laughs> yeah but that's what you do but it's more certain mm-hmm. and so to me in that case like a legal case right i can't be very sure of a trial ever but you should be able to be very sure of an appeal um you know in general like you, people will tell you if oh this is going to be an interesting case that you know there is it raises some real legal questions or if they're like no this is there the the facts might be right or wrong on that but the court's not going to go back and change that that's interesting what about buffett and disasters he has a whole chapter dedicated yeah to there's not a yeah i mean they do a whole big thing that i'm not that sure about it does uh if i remember that chapter right it's about like what things that went wrong like on um september 11th and like world war ii and all those sorts of things uh, that might be the chapter it might be the next one that's either about insurance like, or that exact one that i said like you know what happened uh on pearl harbor what happened on whatever if it's that one i actually didn't like his reasoning on that because there were two problems with it in these cases like they might start after world war one uh two or something like that and so it raises some problems because it excludes 1929 it also excludes obviously covid because this book was written before then Mm -hmm. so it runs into some problems with that sort of thing um was it that one or was it the one you don't know uh or the one where he talks about his insurance thing the other thing they talk about is buffett and insurance Mm -hmm. and insurance is exactly like merger arbitrage stuff and things like that um it's the same approach and so it does help to have a background insurance that way Mm -hmm. did they talk about his portfolio so is that true? Did Pabrai talk more about that? The type of positions he held yeah, in so his personal Pab- portfolio? Yeah, so what Pabrai talks a little bit about is that you can make more money by doing the special situation type investing than you can doing the long term. 
And and Papai's interview is really interesting because he was very clear on his thinking about that, and I would agree with it, which is like if you're Sequoia or something like that, which is the example he gives, you might be able to do 13 14% a year or something in the long run if you just buy and hold stocks. Mm-hmm. But you can do close to 30% a year if you're right in buying something and then you get the multiple re-rating and then you sell it and you do it over and sure, over again. Yeah. So Buffett's best returns were in the partnership. Now, actually, his returns are also very good, um, but I think it was a, a good stock market for it in the 70s and 80s and stuff I, his returns haven't been that great i'd say in the most investing things he's done since about the january deal so since about uh 1997 or whatever year that was um but i guess it closed in 98 but the um uh partnership years were even better sure. and his personal ones might have been better that way too and his advantage over the dow was certainly better he beat the dow by like 20 points um so i think that Papai's point was like, if you buy something that will, if you buy something at four times earnings and it goes to 16 eventually, if you get that re-rating in like five years or something, you're going to far outperform buying and holding a business. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly flipping the portfolio. Right. So. so he's making the argument for that, that sort of thing. And he, he had a lot of success with that. I think Papai's best returns and stuff were from things like that. If I remember in this first 10 years and stuff, they, the ones I remember were like that, where they were, um, Sometimes leveraged, but they were low free cat, low market cap to free cash flow is what I remember most about Ryan. A lot of, if you look at a lot of his ideas, it's always, I feel like, you know, two, three, four times earnings. Yeah. So it's either like, you know, it's going to be a massive re-rating or the company's going to go to zero. Yeah. And this book doesn't discuss it. But if you go back to the partnership things, we know that Buffett personally and in the partnership um, owned some things like that. A good example is he uh, sold Geico after only about a year or so when it was up like 50% or something because he wanted to buy an insurance company that was like one or two times, I think two times earning something like that, um, PE. And that was a better deal because then that re-rates 100%. It could re-rate 100% that same year or in a few years down the road. Mm-hmm. Net nets are the same way. Um, so it's that faster re-rating. And we've talked about that. But you can do that math in your head. Uh, um, I mean, we talked about like, for instance, what does it take to be a 10 bagger, right? Mm-hmm. So to keep in mind, okay, let's say that you have a stock that you think is at two times earnings that could one day be at 20. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you ever come across a stock like that, that means that if it never has any good returns while you own it, if it um, never grows or any of that, even if it took you 15 years, right? If it can go from a two PE to a 20, mm-hmm. okay, it could actually take 17 years. So if it took 17 years to do that, you'd still get a 15% annual return. Right. Mm -hmm. So like buying at discounts where the you're buying at one tenth is very attractive. It's hard to do that today. But if you can find things where the the land is worth 10 times what the company's selling for in the market, you should do that. Because even if you have to hold it for an insanely long period of time, uh, it'll actually outperform you in a very good business. So you just think about it probabilistically. Right. If it's safe enough. We've done so many videos on that. The the problem that I have with that is when I talk to people, and to some extent, Pabri's approach sometimes ran into this problem, I think, too. When I talk to people, the problem is there's a huge difference between something that Buffett invested in, which is virtually has that discount, but is virtually certain not to completely destroy that discount. But more than that, it's not going to end up in bankruptcy or something versus something where that is a possibility. So when I bought a bunch of George Risk or something, some people were like, well, why would you do that? And um, whatever about it, because what if it takes too long? And I did own it for like six and a half years and it matched about the S&P 500 return or something. But nothing happened. No catalyst ever developed and it's kind of worked out that way. That's kind of the downside in it, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically your downside. That was a rock solid business in terms of like it had a lot of cash. It had like no liabilities. Right. But I mean, like it's, it's. Cash was probably, you know, its its investment portfolio was probably 20 times its total liabilities, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that's completely different than when we're talking about a high 
uh, a high free cash flow yield company. So when we talk about graph tech or something like that, mm-hmm. that could have really good payoffs that way. And it could be recognized within five years or whatever, but that or Seritage or something, we've talked about them. They're interesting situations, but they are not necessarily um, risk, very low risk of going to nothing or something like that. Mm-hmm. The ones that have the more leverage. And so a lot of his investments, Buffett's are like in REITs, uh, personal ones were like REITs, especially REITs where there was a promise they'd liquidate or if not a promise they'd liquidate, then uh, an offer on the table for someone to buy them out, mm-hmm. things like that. Those are often very safe that way, sure. So it's very hard to be public with these types of positions because then people could be like, well, you've, I'm sure it was the same situation for you with George Risk, right? So you mm-hmm. held it for six years and it basically matched that SP 500. Yeah. And I was just reading a page in this book and we all know Buffett is very much like this. He never talks about positions that he owns. Right. And even you know if they have to file or a 13F comes out, he just he doesn't talk about any position that they currently own. He'll talk about positions that they've sold in the past and stuff like that and right. he may say you know about apple he's mentioned in the past they're you know an ecosystem and people can't live without him and he's talked mm-hmm. about his grandchildren and stuff with that but generally speaking he doesn't really talk about uh, positions and when we were talking about coca-cola the other day and how buffett has publicly said he probably should have sold it right and i asked you why you think he didn't you had said well he you talked a lot about coca-cola publicly yeah. and he was known as like a long-term investor and stuff like that and he was on the board mm-hmm. and there were there were definitely problems that way i think he would even say that that like by being on the board and stuff that does limit your options that way by being so public about it um it does feel to the company if you're selling that uh because he talked about that i know in the washington post case that a few other value investors who uh were selling and Kay graham was very upset by that Mm -hmm. and he's like they're selling because they're up three or four times and they want to put into other things and stuff but if you sell that's like sell an apple one or whatever that's like telling tim cook that you don't believe in him and the company and stuff it it could be for other reasons it would be hard yeah yeah and and it's not only that too but if you're sitting on the board or i mean we've had i mean think of some positions that we've owned where we've done a ton of work a ton of man hours spent you know time to Mm -hmm. stay in hotels and different states and stuff like that and it's it's hard to, <laughs> to divorce. sell out. It, from that. it is hard yeah. to divorce from that, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, at where's that fine line? Where do you sell out? Where do you, you know? Right. And he know. said, if he was running the partnership or personal money or something, he should sell out. Mm-hmm. And that's that's true, um, because Coke got too expensive, uh, and it's a big company, so you could tell it was too expensive. Because then the like we said, the returns from that are just too low versus the returns of doing things like this. But the other thing is his opportunity cost wasn't like this kind of thing. Um, this kind of thing that we're talking about, these trades and stuff are more along the lines of like when I talk about Japanese net nets and things like that, where you can get some returns that are very big in a short period of time. And that's the other one. Like people I've said before, like I've made the most money in things where I, uh, bought something and then held it for, um, a period of time where it re-rated and everything. But like we talked about Activision, I don't know where it is now, but the stock when we mentioned it was that I had $10,000 of my personal money as a teenager, which would be worth $1.6 million at, you know, now. It's probably good so, it didn't work out because I don't think this thing would be going on if it did. Yeah, no. <laughs> so it was like that, that in that book where they said that was an expensive doctor's bill or whatever. You know, I used the money for yeah, something else. Yeah. And so obviously it's like a million dollar thing now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I should point out is as amazing as that did over that period of time. And actually this applies to Amazon too. If you think about it, this applies to buying Amazon about 20 years ago, holding to today. As amazing as Amazon is by doing that, as amazing as Activision was by doing that for 20 years, my returns in Japanese net nets on an annualized basis were better, like barely better, but Mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. But the problem is I can't find a basket of Japanese net nets to do every year. Whereas all you had to do is find Amazon ones, find Activision ones and not touch it. Mm -hmm. And so that is the issue that comes up with these two things. And I think it comes up with the Pabrai thing. And it's a really good interview with Pabrai in this one. His interviews are always great. 
Pabrat? He's, he's, he's a, a great, great speaker. Speaker. He's yeah. a great speaker. Um, but the reason for it is like the difficulty of finding that next thing. And it has two problems with it. One, you might end up with cash you haven't allocated. But two, you also then make mistakes. And that's what I found to be true. The problem with the trade like Warren Buffett thing is that for Buffett to only do the trading, not do the long-term investing, I think he would have made more mistakes because mm-hmm. several of his trading things ran much closer to d- disaster. I was going to say, it seems yeah. like it's sort of like a home run or a, you know, I mean, because in a sense, out. the Dempster Mill is an example because his sense was he would take it over over time and then he would do a workout. It had barely no public market. So it was meant to be a liquidation. Mm-hmm. So that sounds good. And he should get a return in it. But he came close to lenders mm-hmm. basically foreclosing on it. Then there were other ones. Um, certainly USA Air came very close to being out of business weirdly solomon came close to losing everything in solomon too um so he could have lost his entire investment in u.s air could have lost his entire investment in solomon um and what if he never went in to be ceo at solomon right the right the interim ceo i mean that was definitely a sign of confidence who knows what could have happened to the business you know Right. I mean, that I, definitely played a part in it. That was on the, like the verge reflection. of being shut down. That was on the verge of declaring bankruptcy when people knew Warren Buffett was a major investor on the board and whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so you can imagine what happened if there was some, if Ron Perlman had been running, had been That's had a point. big position in Solomon yeah. at that time. Yeah, it would have gone down. Uh-huh. Um, so where's the fine line, right? So actually, one of our most popular videos that we mm-hmm. uh, always do, or, or the concept we talk about, is anything to do with hundred baggers or ten baggers. Okay. Right. Surprise. Of course, sure. not, right? People want to hear about that, but it's like, so where's the fine line? Because this is the exact opposite of you know, right? Or but Buffett bagger. did both. He did like half and half, almost from the beginning. I wonder how active he is in his personal portfolio today. It to me, it honestly, I don't know how active he is today, but to me, it looked like stuff he didn't think about. It looked to me like stuff where someone's telling me an idea, or I hear an idea like accidentally, or read in the paper. He reads uh, the Washington. Uh, the, he, well, he does read the Washington Post, but I was going to say he reads Wall Street Journal and Financial Times every day. So there is certain stuff that you read and you just go, "Oh, like you can start." To, he's very good at mental math. You can start doing the math in your head mm-hmm. and realize what the spread is and stuff. He did a bunch of reads things, um, which I think are exactly that. He would have come across them accidentally, not looked for them, and they would fit his portfolio that way. Even something like Seridge that people mentioned he owned his personal portfolio. Well, uh, Sears would have been a company that he could have looked at, and it was in the papers and stuff all the time. So you would have accidentally seen the Seridge thing. There's a lot like that. Like in the You Can Be a Stock Market Genius book, actually many of those are discussed in newspapers. So to me, it looked like stuff that he figured out in his head had good probabilities on it, and it's kind of simple. It, it, it's event stuff like I said with that lawsuit one that I mm-hmm. bought into, yeah. um, that, that case. I just read what people were saying about it and stuff. I It's not a company I would ever look at or anything. I wasn't trying to look at it. But just reading it, you start to do the math on it. So I have two questions. So if you had to guess, or maybe you know from the book, what do you think his portfolio allocation looked like? How many stocks did he own? And do you think his returns in his personal portfolio were better than Berkshire? Yeah, his returns in his, I don't know, to this day. Yeah. But histori- like we know from early on, his returns in his personal portfolio were better. Mm-hmm. He, they were in the 50s, and then when he decided he needed to make money again, whenever that was, do you remember that? When he realized that he didn't have enough money coming in from Berkshire and stuff. Uh-uh, what was that? Oh, Is that I, after I, the... I don't remember, but it's a few decades later. Uh-huh. Same thing. So twice in his personal portfolio, we know it's way better than Berkshire. Um, because do you know how good his returns were if you do the math on the 50s, like trying to keep track in the snowball? 
I mean, well, no. He I mean, said he could do fifty percent a year. Yeah. It was better than fifty percent yeah, a year. Yeah. It was it was quite a bit better than fifty percent a year. So you can do that in those sorts of things. And we know that he said that he believes in workouts and things that you should offset them with a fair amount of borrowing. He was willing to offset up. So apparently, he would borrow up to the full amount involved in a deal to the extent that the overall borrowing in the partnership didn't exceed. It seems like like twenty five percent or something. So if he had twenty five percent of the partnership's assets in merger arbitrage he would be leveraging it up by only putting down $1 for every $2 invested in merger arbitrage. Mm-hmm. So he was leveraging up two times, you know, by doing mm-hmm. that. Um, I mean, one time on equity. No, that's really interesting. I, You don't ever hear people talk about his personal portfolio a lot. I mean, the only information I could ever get out was what Pabri has talked about because he's close with Charlie Munger. It so. was a lot of liquidations, REITs, and things like that. There's some things that seem sort of related to commodity stuff, mm-hmm. which he's also done those trades for Berkshire, though. He has talked he, about commodities in his personal portfolio yeah, before. But he he's done those sorts of trades for Berkshire before because we know that... And then, by the way, it's not that... I know that he was invested personally in uranium stocks at one time and after they dropped to, like, nothing because there was a uranium boom in, like, the 50s or 60s uh, in stocks. And he owned Korean stocks, And then they too, plunged to, like, nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By, but again, by basically doing the... What's the lowest requirement of my brain power to do this? Yeah. And just picking over. And so he doesn't he doesn't seem to think very much about his personal portfolio at all he just does the very very obvious things that can be done on the numbers yeah because i think i I saw a video where he was holding up like a korean accounting book or something Mm -hmm. like that and he was talking about what he did for that situation he just went through and it took him back to sort of like his old net net days yeah went like and just picked a bunch of them and and in the 80s and stuff he was able to do arbitrage for berkshire which was stuff he could do on a personal account now, but not for Berkshire because Berkshire's gotten too big. Mm-hmm. I mean, arbitrage has gotten harder in some ways and stuff, but still, if you were a smaller company, if you were a mini Berkshire, there are still deals that you could be involved in in arbitrage and stuff, and maybe he would be. If Berkshire was one one-hundredth the size it is now, maybe he'd still be doing arbitrage stuff for Berkshire, mm-hmm. you know, doing some trades. Very interesting. Very interesting. Trade like Warren Buffett. Did you get it from Amazon? Uh, yeah, this is for bought off Amazon. Bought off Amazon. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focused Compounding Podcast. If you're listening to us on the podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Thumbs this video up. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Jeff, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from Jeff each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com slash app or wherever apps are sold. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next podcast.